one of my favorite things to do uh, in the ministry is uh, be able to see you, teach you, and, and spend some time in the Word together. Um, but I, I hope you guys uh, were encouraged and challenged by what um, Mark had to bring over the last few weeks. Um, I hope that you guys enjoyed it. Um, I know it was good uh, for Mark to be able to do that. But I want to take just a second to let you know that um, you are, I, I want you to, I welcome um, feedback. If you guys like a, 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 a specific speaker, um, or if you want to hear uh, somebody in the church, you want to hear a different speaker, um, or topics, um, if you like or dislike, I mean, I, I'm open. I want to hear those things. I want to receive the, the feedback and criticism or critique if you have anything. Um, please do that. You can call me on the phone or text me or, or email or whatever. Come in. You can, we can get coffee or something like that. So just um, if you have something to say, make it known. Um, I'd love to, love to hear that. I'd also, if you have good things to say about speakers, I'd love to pass that along as well. Bad stuff you can probably just, you know, you don't have to tell them. Um, we don't want to discourage anybody. Um, but let me know, because I do want to um, adjust how we're doing this as well. So um, if you'll remember, it's been, a couple, it's been probably a month or more, a month and a half. The last time I talked, we talked a little bit about uh, Christian maturity. We spent time in Titus. Um, we talked about what it means to be a mature believer. And this is not necessarily my mini-series. I didn't come into this uh, semester planning on doing a mini-series personally on discipleship or maturity or anything like that. But I think... You know, the Lord has used um, what we've done to, uh, to kind of shape how the semester has looked. And so today, I want to spend a little bit of time diving into uh, the category of discipleship on a whole. So I talked about maturity. We did touch on discipleship in there, but I want to kind of step back and take a broader view, a 30,000-foot view of what discipleship is and how we see that in Scripture. Um, and one of the reasons I want to do that is because that's what I see as... Um, one of my main uh, purposes in doing this ministry. Now, um, when I announced that I was going to be the, the college director, um, I, I let you guys know I am still part-time. And so, unfortunately, I can't do everything that Paul was doing. And that's why we've had some speakers coming in. Um, but one of the things I do want to try and do is build discipleship into, even though I can't maybe meet with as many people as Paul was meeting with, but I want to try and connect you guys. If you guys are ready to, to begin maturing and getting into this process, um, I want to start making those connections. I want to help you guys out, help build you into mature believers as I'm being built into a mature believer. I'm still in this process. I, I'm still meeting with somebody. I need that. Um, my wife needs that. We're all, of, all of the adults in here, we're trying to do that as well. So it's not like we're saying, we're great. You guys need to work on this. So we're doing this alongside you as well. So... Um, that's why we're taking a step back here to look at the, the broader picture, and, and I, I, I'm calling it the components of discipleship because I see these things that we're going to talk about, these four components, as kind of the, the basic um, blocks of discipleship. It's going to look different in every situation. Each relationship is going to look, um, look different, and each discipler is going to have a different philosophy on how they, how they go about it. Uh, but these, I think, are the, um, the, the foundation. Um, discipleship, though, is, is not an unchanging discipline, and it's not one-size-fits-all. Every, everything is going to be different in that. Um, it's going to be different in each situation. But I was reminded as I was thinking about this concept um, of a company, and I want to I read a little bit about this company to you and see if you can figure out what, what, what I'm talking about. Um, 
This company started in 1932 by a carpenter, carpenter who began making wooden toys. Now, if you know what I'm talking about, just shout it out um, at some point. If, if like while I'm reading through this, you say, I know that company, go ahead and yell it. I wanna see if you guys, I would not have gotten this if I just reading my description. Um, okay, so he is a carpenter began making wooden toys. The motto of the company that was coined in 1936 is only the best is good enough. Anybody know that one? Know that company motto? Seems pretty generic to me. I don't know. Uh, in 1947, this company began to make plastic toys. Uh, in 1958, they revolutionized the toy industry. So we're, okay, come on, you guys are way too quick with that. That's really boring. I'm gonna finish this. I know, I know, but you, I, I thought it would at least take longer than that. Congratulations, both of you guys got it at the same time. So it's good, congratulations. That was Torn and Brandon, everyone, and the company was Lego. You just, you just were, sure, you were piggybacking on that? Okay, Brandon. Let's give Brandon a round of applause. That was good, that was good. That's good. Okay, spoiler alert, Brandon spoiled. I, I didn't, he didn't spoil it. I just, I, not, it's, it's easier than I thought it was gonna be. So, all right, Lego, okay. So, I'm gonna finish because I put work into this. Um, I did a lot of research on Lego, okay guys? This is kind of ridiculous, too much time. Uh, in, uh, in 1999, Fortune Magazine crowned this toy the toy of the century, of the 20th century, uh, Lego was toy. Would somebody have gotten it based off of that, the toy of the century? Probably, okay. I got a probably in a, one of these. Okay, um, then the company received high honors by Brian, Brand Finance, who ranked uh, the most powerful brands in 2015. They replaced Ferrari as the most powerful brand in the world. Surprising. They're not on the list anymore, unfortunately. Six years later, they've tanked. But um, so yeah, you guys know the company. It's Lego. Um, so how many of you guys played with Legos as kids? Uh, that's almost everyone. That's pretty good. Almost everybody played with Legos. Um, now, how many of you are in your degree program because of Legos, or some some like you you liked doing that type of thing because Legos? Are, I don't. I'm, there is no judgment. There's no judgment. I like, thank you, Torin. Anybody else want to be brave like Torin? Okay, we've got Samuel and Luke up here. Yeah, Italia, nice. All right, we've got, that's good, that's good. You guys, you guys decided what you wanted when you were young. I did not, unfortunately. Um, it took me a while to figure it out. So, what's great about Legos? You can do anything you want with them. You can take the pieces apart, they come in a package, you build the thing, and then you toss them into a giant bucket, and then someday when you're bored, you dump the bucket out, and you're like, what can I make? Let's see what we can do. Um, how many of you guys made those ca cars that looked nothing like cars out of the like Frankenstein pieces that you had after you had all these like Legos? Legos are amazing, and I'm not. We're not preaching about Legos today, but <laughs> as I considered what discipleship is, it's based on building blocks. It's based on four components like Legos. You can take the bricks and you can mix and match and do whatever you want with them and build pretty much anything, and I, I did look it up, and I think the largest tower ever made out of Legos was made in Italy, and it was, it looked like a Frankenstein tower. They didn't have Legos built for it. It was, I wanna say like 130 meters tall. I don't know however many feet that is, but, what? Two, one? I, less than one, more than one? I don't know. I don't know how many that is in football fields. I don't know what meters are, okay? I learned yards. It's what? Three 
It's basically three feet. Okay, thank you. So you can do the math. You guys are smarter than I am. Okay. So you can take all of these things, you can take these Legos and you can build what you want out of them. But today, bridging the gap, <laughs> as much as I can, we, um, you know, that went longer than I wanted it to, but we wanna take these four components that we're gonna talk about and use that to build what discipleship looks like. Um, and so the, the first component that we're gonna talk about is the, the command to practice. That's, okay, I got behind myself. Okay, the command to practice discipleship. We are supposed to be practicing discipleship. Turn to Matthew 28. Uh, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. You guys are familiar with this. Um, you've probably heard uh, this passage preached countless times. You've maybe even memorized this passage. Um, but you might be thinking as you're, as you're considering what this verse is, if you know it, uh, this is about evangelism, not discipleship. Um, this probably doesn't fit in the context of the sermon, but I wanna, um, I wanna take a look at it and kind of look at it from a different angle. A lot of, a lot of people do use this for evangelism. I, I think it should be used as evangelism, but I think that evangelism is a part of discipleship. So let's read it. I'm gonna read uh, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, and it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So you guys are familiar with this, uh, with this verse, um, and it, it probably does belong in the, the missions conference, but why are we talking about this today? Um, oftentimes we focus on what? The first word. The first word is go. That's what we think about. We, all right, we go. Um, but there's only one command in this passage. And I've kind of already tipped the hand there. It's not go. Uh, go is not the command. The command is make disciples. That's how it fits in a discipleship sermon, is because we are to be making disciples. The assumption is that you are going. So it could be read. I should have had this up there for you in case you didn't have your Bibles ready. Uh, but it could be read. Therefore, while you are going, you are already going to be going about your life. You're going to be living life. You're going to be doing things. While you're doing that, make disciples. So the command is to make disciples. Yes, that entails evangelism. Because how do you make a disciple? They have to know Jesus first. Once they know Jesus, then you can begin building that. And then we get into a process. But you evangelize, you make the disciples. And as you're doing that, what does it look like? You're, you're baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's identification. You're identifying with God. You're identifying with Jesus. It's public. That's why it happens in the main service. We have a pub public proclamation that I identify with Jesus Christ. I identify. That's why when you go under the water, it symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You're identifying with his death. And then the resurrection, ultimately, because you've now been saved. And then also, the second... Um, not command the second aspect of what making discipleship look or making disciples look like in this passage is teaching. So you're baptizing people um, as a as a uh, identification with Christ, but then you teach them. You have to build them up. They have to understand what they're doing, and it's kind of a, a summary statement. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Jesus walked around for three years talking with these disciples. He taught them a lot. They wrote the scriptures. They wrote the New Testament for us. They have successfully passed his teaching down. Now we, by extension, need to be doing that. This is not just a command for pastors and um, missionaries and evangelists. 
This is for all Christians. Every time we read the Bible, we need to be looking, how does this apply to my life? Sometimes it doesn't always directly apply, but this one does. You should be making disciples. There's no qualification here. While you're going about your life, make disciples. And that's what it looks like. We need to be, we need to be making sure that as we go through the scriptures, we're internalizing these things. And then we'll be able to, as we learn more about Christ, we can pass that on and make disciples that way by giving them the teaching. So we need to ask ourselves now. We've read it. We understand it. How are we doing? Are we doing this appropriately? Are we being faithful to the command that we've been given? This is called the Great Commission a lot of times. Jesus commissioning the disciples to go out and pass, pass along the gospel. And then by extension, pass it along where to pass the, the gospel along as well. Are we obeying? A commission is a charge with authority. Are we going to obey this? Are we doing this? It's not just a suggestion. Jesus isn't um, giving us a, a wise saying that we can do with it what we will. We're supposed to be doing that. And see, I'm not saying you have to go out and be missionaries to do that. Paul and Summer, they did that, but they were already doing it here. Many of you can attest to that, that you've been discipled by them or you've been discipled by somebody here. You can do that here. You can do that in your course of study with your friends. You don't have to go and be a missionary to be a part of discipleship. That's something that we should all be doing as we're going about this, as we're going about our lives, as we live together. It's, it's discipleship, learning from one another, teaching one another. And so as we try and figure out how that looks, that leads us kind of in our into our second component of discipleship, which is the process. And I'm not, I'm not here to set out some um, you know, rigid format or what we're trying to do. You can look up, there's probably hundreds, if not thousands, of dis discipleship plans, different things you can go through. You could pick a book and read a book with somebody and they could teach you through that book. You could pick a book of the Bible. You could do memory verses with someone. It, you could list any number of different ways to go about discipleship but we have to be engaged in the process. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is another familiar verse. I'm not trying to bring new scriptures out necessarily, but we want to really internalize the scriptures that we know. We want them to, to affect our lives and begin to teach us and, and change us in that way. So 2 Timothy 2, ver, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, it says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And trust to others also. So teach faithful men who will be able to teach others. You guys are familiar, but consider what are the implications on the discipleship process? What are we supposed to be doing? Basically what Paul is saying, everything that I've taught you, take that and now teach other people. And then when they're able to teach, have them take what I've taught you and teach other people. He's setting up a cycle of discipleship. He's setting up uh, an ability for the Great Commission to be fulfilled. So when we think of this passage, um, we think of that discipleship cycle. When Jesus commanded that we make disciples, Paul has now commanded Timothy, and by extension, us again, to make disciples. But when we're making disciples, who are we making disciples of? Because if you look up a definition of a disciple any, anywhere today, and this was, this was not new. If you've been listening to Pastor Davy's sermons, he talked about the fact that disciple was not a, a unique thing. Jesus didn't come down and be like, you know what? I'm going to pick 12 guys, and they're going to be my disciples, and that's when he made disciples. 
Now, the ancient Greeks had been doing it for many years before Jesus did it. He was just taking that same philosophy, and he was, he was teaching people. Because that's, that's what you do. You learn from other people. So who are we making disciples of? Are we making disciples of ourselves? I hope not. <laughs> I don't want anybody to be like me. Are we making disciples of Paul because he was the one that passed this, this teaching down to Timothy? He would say, certainly not. We're making disciples of Christ. Whenever we're, we're taking someone, we're trying to conform them not to our own image or what we believe that Christ's image was. We're taking the image of Christ that we receive from Scripture. We're taking the knowledge of God. And we're passing that on to them. They become a disciple of Christ. You're just alongside them, helping them as you are attempting to become a disciple of Christ. Because we're always in that process. We're never done being disciples. We think about the disciples as being Jesus' disciples, and then when Jesus left, they became apostles. I think it's easy for us to forget that they were still Jesus' disciples. They still were using that teaching to point other people to Christ. They were pointing them to the teacher, not to the teaching or to them, to Christ. And that's what we should be doing. And sometimes we get that a little bit out of whack. We misunderstand what we're supposed to be doing and unintentionally either we begin trying to make other people into our disciples or maybe as a disciple we're trying to become someone else. And what happens when we do that? Well, if you're the discipler and you begin thinking that people need you, that it's, it's you that keeps these people going, what does that lead to? Really easily. Pride. Self-reliance. I don't need God. I know what I need to know from the scriptures. But I need, to, I need to give that to other people. Other people need that. And I'm the only one that can do it. It's really easy to do. But then think about it from the flip side. If you're the person learning, if you're the disciple, what happens if you're putting your trust in that person rather than in Christ? What happens if you're trying to follow them and trying to be just like them? What when they fall away, when they fail, what happens? You fall away. You fail because everything was relying on that person and what they've done. Now, Lord willing, they won't because they're trying to be like Christ. And they're trying to make you like Christ. Lord willing, that won't happen. But if something happens to that person and they die, your, your faith is relying on them. You can no longer learn to become more like Christ because you don't have them anymore. Or because they've fallen away, you get burnt off of Christianity. You don't, you don't like Christianity anymore, so you fall away too. We have to remember who we are disciples of and who we're making disciples of, who we are pointing people to. It's to Christ. Discipleship is ultimately to be focused on the teaching of the truth of the gospel, to be focused on what Jesus Christ has done for us, what he has said to us, what he has given us to do. It's not to be whatever I can be in my own power. It's to become more and more like Christ. This type of discipleship leads to mature disciples. It leads to disciples who are characterized as godly. And that leads us into our third component here, the component of the goal. We talked about this. We talked about what Christian maturity is. But I think if I could summarize the Christian life and what... What the Christian, if you, could, if you could hold somebody up and say, this is the ideal, which we would never do. But if we could do that, if we could say, this is the one thing you should be aiming for, godliness. 
It's to be more godly. It's Christ-likeness. You can put any other term that sounds like it or, or is like it. Ultimately, that points back to Christ. It points back to God. That's the goal. That's what we're trying to do. So turn back just a few pages in your Bible uh, to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. This is what we're going to be uh, focusing on with the goal. 1 Timothy 4, 7. This is Paul's first letter to, to Timothy. And we know he's, he's already focusing on discipleship with Timothy. He's, Timothy is Paul's disciple, essentially. So let's see what he has to say uh, here in verse uh, 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. It says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds to the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness. It's not just a good idea. It's not just something that will keep you from harm. This is something that's ultimately going to, it's going to better you, not just for this life, but for the life to come. It's working towards the life to come, not just here. But I can't skip over it. I wanted to, I wanted to just start with rather. I didn't really want to talk about irreverent silly myths because it's kind of weird. And I, uh, it's, it's strange and I don't know why. I think the, the term irreverent is actually having to do with old women. You know, so it's just, it's a, it's a weird thing to say, uh, but it makes sense with what Paul's talking about. The word myths is used five times in the New Testament. Paul uses it four times in reference to <laughs> irreverent silly myths. In, the, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he talks about myths about genealogies. We don't know exactly what he's talking about here. He doesn't reference anything specifically. But what we know is that he's contrasting. This is why I couldn't take it out. One, it's, it's good Bible study. You can't just skip over the stuff you don't like. But two, he's contrasting. When he says, rather train yourselves for godliness, he's contrasting it from something else where it says, have nothing to do with these silly myths. Those are the false teachers. These are characteristic things that false teachers would do. They would, they would share these crazy stories and kind of get people whipped up and excited about the crazy stories. But Paul's saying, no, don't do that. Don't waste your time with that. Train yourself for godliness because those stories have no bearing on life. Specifically, earlier on in, these, uh, in chapter 4, verse 3, he says... Um, He's talking about people who are forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods and drinks and things like that. Basically, Paul says anything that God made is fair game. Anything God made is good. And so people are saying, well, you know, Paul's teaching that you can have anything you want. He's not, he's not telling people they can do whatever they want or giving them some sort of free pass. He's telling them, use your, your life for godliness. Use it for self-control, which is why he says, train yourself. He's, he's drawing a picture to physical exercise. He's drawing a picture. In this culture, exercise was huge, just like it is in our culture. So this, this is one of the illustrations in the Bible we can directly understand and relate to. There are some that make no sense, but right here we can grab onto this. Because, yeah, we understand the need for bodily training. We understand the need to, to maintain uh, good exercise because it's good for your mind and your body keeps you younger. We understand not eating certain foods because they 
make you overweight and give you heart issues. We understand not doing certain activities because they're bad for your body. You can get diseases. You can any number of things. We could avoid that stuff because it's good for us physically. But instead, what we should do is train ourselves for godliness because godliness not only gives us some temporal benefit, because it does, it protects you from all those same things that physical exercise and all that other stuff does. But godliness works for the heart, goes to the motives. It attaches itself to everything that you do, every thought that you have. Godliness is holistic. Everything in your life should be characterized by godliness. That's what mature believers seek to do. That's what disciplers seek to be doing and seek to, to bring their disciples up in godliness, pointing them back to Christ. We can spend our time working on temporal things, but we also need to be working on eternal things, working on godliness. And that's why godliness is the goal of discipleship. That's why we're attempting to attain godliness because it, it holistically affect, affects every aspect of our lives, temporal and eternal. So we should be daily working to grow in godliness. As we bring this to a close, let's talk about the last component of godliness, which is the cost. The cost of discipleship. Um, frankly, this is a topic we don't want to talk about. I don't really want to talk about it. I don't like talking about it. I don't really like thinking about it. Um, especially in the American church because I feel like we have it so well. We have it so good. We do things um, in America that uh, the church hasn't been able to do for, for most of the life of the church. We've been able to, to worship freely and um, have the freedom to be open about our Christianity for the better part of 200 years. I don't know, is it 250 now? Almost. We've got 245 years or whatever. So we've been able to have some freedom here, but we need to remember what the cost is. Let's look at Luke 14. If you could turn over there. Luke 14. Um, this is Jesus teaching the crowds. Um, and then he's going to get into a, a, a parable here. But I just want to take two, of it, two verses here, two, two things he says. Um, I'm going to go ahead and back up to verse 25. It says, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, great crowds. Think of it. This is not, I mean, we're not even talking the chapel. We're not talking about the number of people in the main service. We're talking possibly thousands of people, right? He had, um, he fed 5,000 and then 4,000, and that was just the men. So there were women and children too, so potentially 10,000 people. This is a massive crowd. This is a mega church, if you want to call it that. Jesus had massive crowds following him. Now, listen to what he says, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. These are strong words. He was not seeker-sensitive. He was trying to get them to understand the point was not about getting food. The point was not about a free meal or getting your, your relatives healed. The point was about becoming a disciple of Christ. 
So what does it mean to hate our own family, our closest relatives, and possibly even ourselves? What does it mean to hate yourself for the sake of Christ? Because honestly, I think we probably would be like, yeah, no, I don't think that's what he means, but I'm not entirely sure why. And this is something I've, I've just learned recently, um, is that in his culture, in the Hebrew culture, um, they used terms, the polarizing terms like love and hate, when they used those things, it was kind of to, uh, to understand it in a comparison of degrees. When you were to say that you hated something, it was to say that you loved that other thing more. So if you hate your mother or your father, you love Christ more than them. You love Christ more than your own life. So when we consider that, we're not really, you know, it doesn't mean that Jesus wants us to take this holier-than-thou um, attitude once we become saved and, and start browbeating all of the unbelievers around us. He's just saying, look, if your family turns you away, if your friends leave you, if you lose your job, that's because you love Christ more than that thing. You've chosen to stick with Christ over keeping your job, keeping a relationship. Ultimately, as believers, we know that we should still be reaching out and loving those people, but we can't make them love Christ. We can't make our family become believers, too. We can't even make them listen to us. They can hang up on us. They can leave. But we need to be willing to say, I stand with Christ, not these other things. I love Christ more than these other things. Now let's think about it. Let's make it a little bit more personal. What does it mean to hate your own life and to take up your cross? I think that phrase, take up your cross, has kind of become just a slogan for us. You know, people, people wear crosses around their necks. Some of you might have crosses on right now. What does it mean to take up your cross? When he said that in this crowd of people, that was a daily reality for them. They saw crucifixion daily. It wasn't just what it's come to be today that, yeah, I identify with Jesus. They didn't know that yet. When they expected a Messiah, they expected, expected him to be the conquering king, doing all the things Jesus was doing, but overthrowing Rome and saying, no more crucifixions. But he didn't. He told them, hate your life, take up your cross. That was a daily truth for them. A lot of people left after he said things like that. Nobody wanted to follow him. How many disciples were at the cross with him? How many of his disciples? One man and some women. I don't know, three, four. The people that followed him to the cross. Now think about us. What does that mean? We're not being crucified. There's no threat of persecution today. And the worst that we might get is an angry conversation on social media. Somebody blocks us. Maybe somebody would say something to your face, but even now I don't know how much of that's going to happen. Yeah, the country's turning, but does that mean that we're going to be persecuted right now? I don't know. Because we still have freedom. We're still able to worship in freedom. We're still able to meet. We can do this. We can go be goofy at Broomball. We can go serve people in the name of Christ. We can wear t-shirts that say, make much of Jesus. I don't know how much longer that's going to last. I'm not trying to like make any predictions or anything like that. I'm just saying, 
we need to be prepared when that time comes. Are we willing to suffer for the name of Christ? To hate whatever thing it is, whether it's family, whether it's your job, your friends. You hate those things in the sense of you love Christ more. If your parents are believers, what if they turned away from Christ? Would that make you turn away from Christ? I can't answer that. My parents are believers. I have no idea what would happen, how I would feel about that. Are you willing to die for Christ? It's really easy for me to say yes, or for you to say yes, because we're standing in the chapel of the Shepherd's Church. It's really easy to talk about that. It's possibly even easy to talk about it in New York or, or California or whatever, where it's harder to live than, than here. Are you willing? I can't answer that. You probably can't even answer that for yourself right now. But just think about it. Count the cost. That's what Jesus is calling us to. He's not calling us to 21st century American church life. He's calling us to a lot more. Are you willing? Sorry, I'm a little behind here. Are you willing? Are you willing to be a Christ follower? I mean, <laughs> I don't really want to sign up with that program. I mean, I'm already here, so I can't do anything about that. But it's not really much of a sales pitch. You know, if you were to walk up to somebody and say, are you willing to die right now? They're going to be like, no, I'm not joining that. I, wanna, I don't have a slide for it, but I want to read you something. Um, this was an ad put out for, the, for riders with the Pony Express. Pony Express was early 19th century, I think, when they, when they were getting the mail from the, uh, across the mountains from like Missouri out to California before they had the, the telegraph. So it was a hard job. The riders were expected to ride 75 to 100 miles a day through rough terrain, inclement weather, and attacks from Native Americans. They oftentimes weren't allowed to wear coats because they had to ride fast. They had a revolver and a horse, and that's it. They had to ride hard and travel light. It was a hazardous job. And this is the ad. This is what the ad reads. True statement. Wanted. Young, skinny, wiry fellows, not over 18. They wanted boys who were light and could ride faster. Because if you were hefty, husky, you weren't a fast rider. They wanted light people. Then it says, expert riders willing to risk death daily. No kidding. Riding through the Rockies. There weren't roads then. Risk death daily. Finally, this is what gets me. Orphans preferred. <laughs> they wanted people who weren't going to be missed. They wanted people who were not going to be missed. Man, that's, that's not an ad that would fly today. People wouldn't sign up for that. They were looking um, probably at a short list of candidates. There probably weren't that many. Although it was early on, people didn't live as long, so they could have been orphaned really easily. I don't know. But... What if we advertise discipleship that way? What if instead of saying, hey, come to our awesome building with our sweet, you know, worship sets and, and coffee and we've got snacks. What if, what if we had some sort of an advertisement like this? Wanted. Those willing to lose relationships, including, including those closest to them. Willing to be fired from their jobs, constantly ridiculed. 
prepared for death if necessary. All welcome. What if we, what if we had ads like that? Somebody make a t-shirt out of that. I want to see that design. It'd be an interesting church flyer if we were to pass those things around at a conference or something like that. But on the back of the Pony Express ad, I don't know if there was a back to it, but I don't think it said anything about compensation or, or anything like that. I don't think they really cared because you were probably going to die anyway. But on the back of our ad, the back would say, those who lose this life gain everlasting life with their God and Savior. Doesn't that just beat it all? Honestly, even as I say that right now, it's hard for me not to think about my life. It's hard for me not to think about my, my, beautiful, li my beautiful wife, our adorable little daughter. I can't lose that. But the benefits outweigh whatever negatives there might be. Christ is worth it. Discipleship is not an easy thing. I'm not saying that that's the ad we're putting out for our discipleship. So if you don't want to be involved in the discipleship because of that, it's not exactly what it's going to look like right now. But I do want you to know and be aware of the cost. When you get into this process of discipleship, it can be hard. Teaching other people, learning from other people, it can be hard. People stink sometimes. People are really hard to deal with. People disappoint you. Being transparent with other people is, is hard because you've got to be open about your sin when you're being discipled. You've got to tell other people, if you want to grow in Christ, change for the better, you've got to be willing to share, to open up. But we're commanded to be a part of this. But we are not left alone. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. He's going to help you. Christ said that when he left, he was going to be sending a helper that was better. The disciples said, well, why do you have to leave? He said, if I don't go, I can't send this, the helper. When he comes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to open up all kinds of things for you. We have the Holy Spirit. He guides us, helps us through this process. He gives us the courage to speak when we're prompted. Christ wouldn't have called if he wasn't able to empower. And he is. He is able is sufficient. So let's go out. Let's do it together. Let's figure it out. It's a messy process. I'm, I'm flawed. I fail. You guys are flawed. You fail. But let's do it together. We're commanded to. Let's pray. Father God, we are just so unbelievably grateful that you would count us worthy to receive your son to receive salvation, that you live within us through the Holy Spirit. You give us power to, to speak. We can see instances throughout the New Testament where men who were feeble, men who failed, were given the opportunity to proclaim your name, and through that power, lives were changed. The church was born. God, we thank you that we get to be a part of it. Help our church to look more and more like you. Help us as individuals to look more and more like you each day. God, give us power to proclaim your name.
pray it in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we break up, I have one announcement. Um, 